Welcome to another episode of Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to exploring some of the most interesting scholarship and books in the discipline of history. Our aim is to illuminate some of the great work being done by historians of the United States Naval Academy and beyond, and to share with you ideas that are driving new interpretations of the past. For today's episode, we have with us in the studio Dr. Roger Bailey, an expert on the antebellum U.S. Navy, who will be interviewing Dr. Gene Smith, an early Americanist and author of The Slave's Gamble, Choosing Sides in the War of 1812. Hi, Gene. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for allowing me to be here. (laughs) So the title of your book is based on this idea uh, of the War of 1812, creating chaos and possibility for African-Americans who all of a sudden had different options they wouldn't normally have. And I I confess when I... uh, first saw it, I, I was expecting it to be a choice between the British and the Americans. Uh, but I was surprised to learn that there were actually a lot of options that slaves could, uh, could gamble choices. on. Yeah, exactly. Several and choices. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what exactly were the options on the table. Well, and I, I think what's significant about the title of the book, this was not the title of the book that I initially wanted to have. I wanted to call it Sons of Freedom and use that as a, a moniker to talk about how African Americans became Sons of Freedom. But as I began doing this book, what I it initially was a book about black combatants in the War of 1812. And as I researched it and as I began writing it, I realized, oh no, this is not a book about black combatants. This is a freedom story. And so what I tried to do in every chapter is, except for the first chapter, that's kind of a historical overview of black combatants who have served in North America. But then I try to to use a vignette of an individual and to show you the choices they had to make. And ultimately, when they made those choices, the impact it had on their lives. And ultimately, when I began this project, I thought it was a choice, you know, the War of 1812 between the United States and Great Britain, but I found out, oh, it was a much more complicated choice than that. It was between the United States and Great Britain, but then it was also Spain, because the Spanish still controlled Florida along the Gulf Coast. And then often you had slaves running away to Native Native American communities. So that's a fourth choice. And then sometimes you had slaves running away to renegade maroon communities that were often marginalized areas so that they could be outside of white control. So you had as many as five different choices, and the choices that people made ultimately had an impact on their future lives. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how that impact usually worked out? Because, you know, obviously a lot of these choices held the promise of freedom for African Americans, and, uh, you know, your book describes how that that (laughs) sometimes worked out more in line with what they expected, and sometimes they were pretty badly disappointed. Well, a lot of times they were very badly disappointed. In fact, what I found is that generally those slaves that chose to join with the British, they would, for the most part, get their freedom. Those slaves that chose to join with the Spanish they generally got their freedom. Those slaves that stayed with the Americans, even though they were promised freedom, most of them did not get it. And those slaves that ended up 
siding with Native Americans? Well, the Native Americans in the war did very poorly. In the Northwest, they were defeated by Harrison's army. Uh, and in the Southwest, Andrew Jackson absolutely destroyed the Creeks. And ultimately after that, you had renegade Creeks who were running south into Spanish Florida. And oftentimes they would take these renegade slaves with them and run into Spanish Florida. And the maroon communities, well, most of those would be wiped out in the immediate aftermath of the war. So for the most part, the choices were only really good if they chose Britain or if they chose Spain. And why, uh, why was Britain doing this? Why was, can you talk a little bit more about why Britain was interested in freeing you know, all of the enslaved people in America and uh, whether they were you know, doing this for abolitionism or was this just a war measure? Well, what you have to keep in mind about British history is that in 17, as early as 1795, the British had started using African Americans as combatants in the Caribbean. And they gave them their freedom if they served in the British military. By 1807, the British had basically abolished the international slave trade. And by March of 1808, a British order in council basically said, that if a British naval vessel captured any ship illegally carrying slaves, then the slaves were to be given the opportunity to enlist in the British Navy or the British Army. And that basically would give them their freedom. And as the war began, I think one of the key things to keep in mind is that Britain was also fighting against France and Europe. So they didn't have a lot of troops to send to North America. And it was always kind of an afterthought, the war in North America was. So the British had to boost their manpower reserves. And one of the ways they would choose to do this was by permitting naval officers to recruit refugees. And some naval officers and some army officers are very much better at doing so. Probably the best would be Alexander, I mean, um, George Coburn. George Coburn, who served in the Chesapeake under the command of Alexander Forster English Cochran, and then he later served off the coast of Georgia. And basically, when you look at the number of slaves that Britain liberated during the war, there's still some debate over how many truly were freed. But the number of slaves that were taken out of North America is roughly about 4,800. And about 3,500 of those came from the Chesapeake, and the other 13 or so hundred came from the coast of Georgia and South Carolina, and then from the Gulf Coast. Um, and when you look at George Coburn, he's there in the Chesapeake, and he's raiding Chesapeake plantations and freeing slaves, and then he's down on the coast of Georgia, he's freeing slaves there as well. So he's, and he will, he did have an abolitionist frame of mind, and he saw this as a good thing. So if this is, it sounds like this is a, then, you know, a little bit of both, um, but as, as something that's justified partly as a military measure, could you talk a little bit about what that meant for 
you know, enslaved women and children and the elderly who were also trying to take advantage of the fact that there was this war going on. Well, the, the one thing I found to be very interesting is that the British are so effective at transporting supplies from Bermuda. And they'll load ships up with supplies and with reinforcements. And they would bring them to the Chesapeake, and they had created a base on Tangier Island. And there they would offload the men and the equipment. And then the refugee slaves that they had been liberating, they would put those on the ships and take them back to Bermuda. And so what you had was the purser aboard the ship who had to keep track of how many slaves were there, and he had to make sure they were fed. And so once they got to Bermuda, then it was a colonial official who had to make sure they were fed, and then they would be transported on ship again to another location. Well, when the British were evacuate or when they were liberating slaves in the, in the Chesapeake, they had no qualms about taking women, children, young, old, because they were trying to disrupt the Chesapeake economy. And they, they do a great job at it. In fact, I, one of the things I point out in the book is that when you look at the eastern shore of Maryland, the eastern shore of Maryland suffers horribly from the war and does not really financially recover until literally after World War II. But before the war, they were a very vibrant financial area. And um, the interesting thing about the British is that they tried to get men to join the British military. And Alexander Cochran, in April of 1814, he issued a, an order, and it's a certificate, a big poster, basically saying that anybody who wanted to be evacuated, they could be evacuated as a free person. It didn't designate red, black, white, so anybody could do it. And basically for the men, the British would try to get them to enlist and ultimately about 600 of these Chesapeake and South Georgia men would enlist and they would become British colonial marines. And these colonial marines in the Chesapeake, they are very effective because they know where the plantations are, they know which ones are defended and which ones are not, and they basically would take the British invasion forces and lead them right to the places where they could get the most. It strikes me, too, that uh, one of the other reasons that uh, arming slaves could be so effective is, is just because of how terrified the slaveholding population is Absolutely. Of, of, the, yeah, of the idea of yeah. armed African-Americans. Um, so it was even more wild for me to see, uh, you know, that there were Americans who were, who were willing to, you know, arm slaves to fight for America as well, uh, and, and even, despite the fact that that seems to suggest sort of disorder and upheaval. And I, I was wondering if you could explain, like, the, the thinking behind that for these Americans and whether there was a lot of opposition to it. Well, in the Chesapeake, what you had was white farmers and plantation owners who owned slaves. They had to be looking in front and be looking behind as well. 
because if the British were in the neighborhood, they were on the lookout to see if they were going to land and potentially raid their plantation. But then they had to look over their shoulder to make sure the slaves were not going to rise in rebellion. And there are a number of rebellions in Virginia during the war because the slaves used as an opportunity to throw off the yoke of oppression and, and then would run to the British. Um, why would some join with the Americans? Well, that's a really peculiar question, too, because there are a number of, of vignettes in the book. Like, for example, I told the vignette of Charles Ball, who was from Maryland, and Charles Ball, he was a slave. He had been he had been sold by his master to Georgia, and he escaped and traveled only at night and lived off the land, and it took him about a year and a half to get back to Maryland. And the interesting thing that I learned about that is by the time he got back to Maryland, he went right back to where he came from. And no one turned him in because his owner, a guy named Levin Ballard, and Levin Ballard was really, he must have been some kind of foul person because apparently none of his neighbors liked him. And he had died while Charles Ball had been sold off to Georgia. So by the time he gets back, basically Charles Ball begins hiring out his services to other farmers. He's a farmer and a fisherman. And by the time of the War of 1812, that happened about 1807, by the time of the War of 1812, he had actually secured a little property. And a group of Calvert County, Maryland farmers, plantation owners, basically asked Charles Ball to accompany them to visit the British fleet off Tangier Island because they were going to appeal to their slaves to get them to return. And... Ultimately, what happened is that they appealed to these slaves, and Charles Ball was there trying to encourage them, and in the end, absolutely zero chose to return. And the owners, the white owners, basically asked Charles Ball to stay among the slaves at night, during the night, and then leave the following morning. Well, after the following morning, guess how many slaves chose to leave now? Still, Can't imagine. <laughs> zero. And the interesting thing about it, as Ball was getting off the ship, he recounted that a British officer offered him, he said, how would you like to join us as a refugee, as a free refugee in a British colony? And Charles Ball looked at him and said, sir, I am a free man. I have all the land to work that I can work. In reality, he had twisted his own psychological understanding of his situation. He was a he was a, a runaway slave. And had he been smart, he should have said, let me go get the wife and the kids. We'll come right back. We'll get on the ship and we'll go to Bermuda. But he didn't. And ultimately, when he gets back, he is ultimately going to choose to join the American Navy. And he'll serve under Joshua Barney in the battle, you know, as the, um, the gunboats are constantly harassing the British fleet. 
during the spring and summer of 1814. By August of 1814, the British are pursuing Barney's gunboats. They pursue them up the Patuxent River, and they basically get to the point where Barney has to scuttle his vessels. He basically ordered his men to take everything they could get, and they ran back to the Washington Navy Yard. And when they get there, all of a sudden, Barney learns, oh, my gosh, the British are advancing on Washington. So he's instructed to take his sailors and Marines and go out to Bladensburg. And Charles Ball goes out there, and he's a sponger on a cannon. And he's sponging the cannon. And, of course, as the British cross the bridge there, the Americans are just mowing them down, but they just close in ranks. And as they keep coming closer, basically the militia break and run. And then all of a sudden, Charles, I mean, um, Joshua Barney gets wounded and he orders his men to spike their cannons and to flee, to retreat. Charles Ball, who's been sponging this cannon, he drops the sponge and instead of running to the west towards Washington, he walks directly into the British ranks. And it's almost like the Red Sea parted because they thought he was a refugee wanting to be evacuated. And instead, he walked all the way to Baltimore. And then he served in the outer defenses in the defense of Baltimore in September, a month later. So, you know, he had a, he had a choice and he didn't take it. And that's the hard thing for me to understand. But yet he thought he was doing the right thing. Ball's story is really crazy, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the personal significance that that military service had to them, because clearly it was impactful enough for them to make decisions that, that were turning down the opportunity for, you know, assured freedom sometimes. Well, and that's the really interesting thing about it, is that Ball made a choice, and the choice he made was to side with the Americans, even though he was a fugitive slave. And yet, after the battle at Baltimore... Once the British evacuate later that fall of 1814, Charles Ball goes back to being a farmer again and a fisherman. And he basically, he's, he buys some additional land. His first wife, Judah, she ends up dying. He marries a second woman named Lucy. And I used to say, you know, he had children. No, his wives had the children. He just helped. But nonetheless, um, by 1830, it was so bizarre a slave trader came through Calvert County and claimed to recognize Charles Ball and basically took him in chains again and drug him back to Georgia. And again, he was able to escape. He again traveled at night, living off the land. This time it took him about a year to get back because I guess he had done it once before. Well, by the time he got back, he found that his wife Lucy and the children they had been sold off into slavery, and he just became disillusioned. A few years after that, he realized that he couldn't stay in Maryland because he was a fugitive slave, and if the slave trader came back through again, he would have to break free of slavery again. So he ended up moving to central Pennsylvania, and there he began writing his memoir. His memoir is entitled, Slavery in the United States, 
a narrative of the life of Charles Ball, published in New York in 1837. And the reason he did that is because he wanted to make money off of it, and it sold considerably amongst the abolitionist crowd. He wanted to use that money to find his wife and kids. And to the point that he died, I never found any evidence that he ever found Lucy and the children. So the choice that he had had there in 1814, if he had said, let me go get the little lady and the kids and we'll be right back, that could have been far better for him than choosing to side with the Americans. Yeah, that's a tragic ending to the story. It really is. In retrospect, did he ever show any signs of regretting his decision? From the evidence I saw, no. His memoir, it did, I mean, his memoir was a, a fairly accurate description of his life. And see, a lot of people claim that Charles Ball hadn't really served on Barney's gunboats. Well, why was his last name Ball? Because he had been owned by Levin Ballard. And so when he enlisted, he took the name Ballard. But then after that, he started going by Ball. Um, and I think what happens is that Charles Ball never fully accepted the results of the war, the results of what happened to him, and then he never accepted that he was still a slave, a fugitive slave. Were things uh, as positive for uh, the African-Americans who wound up in uh, the West Indies? Those who ended up in the West Indies, generally when they were transported from Tangier Island to Bermuda, initially they were transported to Halifax. And the one thing they found in Halifax, it was dang cold. And they found that it was hard to grow crops in Halifax. And by 1821, a group of 1,000 of these refugee slaves, they choose to relocate when the governor of Trinidad invited them to come there. And the interesting thing about it is that they went to Trinidad, and Trinidad was an island that still had slavery. So these, these, these refugees were convinced they were going to be re-enslaved. Well, ultimately what the governor chose to do is he settled them right in the middle of the island on land that was deemed very fertile, and they weren't permitted to associate with the slaves but they created their own villages there. And it's interesting because in that situation, they had to constantly work the land because they were basically in the middle of a jungle. And if they didn't, the jungle would grow back up over them. And the interesting thing about it is when I was here at the Naval Academy in 2013, uh, there was a uh, a symposium, the McMullen Sea Power Symposium, and there was also a big War of 1812 conference hosted here on the Naval Academy, and I actually met a woman who was from Trinidad, and she was a member of a group of people called Merkins, M-E-R-I-K-E-N-S, and these Merkins were the refugee slaves that had moved from 
Canada to Trinidad, and they embraced that name. And she was actually the wife of the Trinidadian prime minister at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was kind of an interesting story. And she said that, you know, that all of those who moved there, by the 1860s, they all had their freedom. They were able to acquire land, and their lives had changed for the better. Well, that's that's wild. I, I feel like this this book is, you know, really characterized by these really colorful vignettes. Um, and uh, everyone just has such a wild story. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about a couple more vignettes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, specifically, like, were there any that were particularly hard to research or uh, like, a you know, favorite that you have? Actually, all of them were somewhat hard. What I've learned is that when you're writing on slaves, it takes you a long time to gather up the materials. And um, that's why the research for this book took roughly 15 years to do. Um, and I was in the UK for the better part of a year teaching, and I was able to hit archives there, and that helped a lot. But it still didn't help as much as I had hoped it would. Now, I'll give you another uh, vignette here about a, a man named Prince Witten. His real name was Principe Witten, H-U-I-T-E-N. And he was born in South Carolina. He was of French derivation. And in the 1780s, he escaped from South Carolina with his wife and kids, and they escaped and fled south to St. Augustine in Florida. That was Spanish control. And there... The Spanish governor was giving pardons to any slave who made it. He was freeing them and giving them the opportunity to create lives for themselves. Well, the interesting thing about Principe is that he was a carpenter. And so when he got there, there were abundant jobs for him. And in fact, he at one point he signed a contract with a Spanish plantation owner and his wife she was a, a house servant, and so they went out on the plantation. He worked on carpentry projects, and the plantation owner actually put his wife in the field, and Prince actually filed suit in Florida court against the Spanish plantation owner and actually won a settlement against him that paid both he and his wife for 38 weeks. And... He went back and he bought land and he he became very prosperous. Well, now, the interesting thing about it was he had two children. And by 1795, there is the first American attempt to invade Florida. And basically, the governor calls out the black militia and Prince Whitten had enlisted in the black militia. And he's fighting against the Americans, trying to drive them back out of Florida. And they do so. Well, the following year, or later that year, 1795, he chose, because he would gain more rights, he chose to join the Roman Catholic Church. And so Prince Witten became Juan Bautista Witten. His wife, Judy, became Maria Raffaella. His son, Glasgow, became Francisco, and his daughter, Polly, became Raffaella. Well, that daughter, Raffaella, 
she actually married a man from the Dominican, uh, from from Santo Domingo, named Jorge Jacobo. Jorge Jacobo was actually the brother-in-law of General Jorge Biasu, who had helped lead the revolt on Santo Domingo. And he had, when the Spanish had brought in troops, he had turned his force, his his men that had joined with him, he had turned them to side with the Spanish to try to, to suppress the revolt. Well, when the British ultimately, I mean, pardon me, when the Spanish ultimately evacuated from the island, they brought Jorge Biasu with him. And ultimately, by 1801, or yeah, by 1801, Jorge Biasu died. And the person who became the commander of the black militia in Florida was his brother-in-law, Jorge Biasu, uh, Jorge Jacobo. And ultimately, because he married Polly, who is now Rafaela, Prince Witten became his right hand, his number two man. And during the War of 1812, there's a, an episode in Florida, it's often referred to as the Patriot War. It happens in 1812 and early 1813 as Southern Americans from Georgia and South Carolina and from the Alabama Territory, they are trying to cut off the escape route for slaves who want to flee to Florida and get their freedom. So they tried to invade Florida and ultimately they were driven back. Well, we know the story of what happens to Florida by... 1819, the United States agrees to purchase Florida. Of course, the transaction is not finalized until 1821. And ultimately, when it's finalized in 1821, Prince Witten, Maria Rafaela, Francisco, and young Rafaela and her husband, Jorge, they all chose to relocate with the Spanish to Cuba. And... From what I found from there, they all lived prosperous lives after that. So that's what I was saying about, you know, when they joined with the Spanish, they generally did much better than if they stayed with the Americans. Yeah, it sounds like they did very well. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's really impressive that you were able to, you know, put pull together such interesting stories from all over the country from, from folks who often didn't have uh, you know, a lot of great records kept about them. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, makes for a, a really interesting well, book. Well, and what, to me, what made the book interesting was that every theater of operation, I was able to identify a person that I could write a vignette about. When it's the war in the Northwest, that's Peter Dennison. When it's the first war in the, or the first year of the war in the Chesapeake, then that is Charles Ball. When it's the second year or you know when they attack on Washington and Baltimore then I chose to write about George Roberts and he was a privateer sailing on the Chasseur and when the Chasseur sails back into Baltimore at the end of the war the ship is deemed as a hero and basically George Roberts becomes a hero and from that point until the mid-1850s he is one of the central features in the September 12th Defenders Day Parade. And, you know, he basically, he was a, 
a black man, but he was a free black man. But he had joined with the privateers because, as I often say, the maritime world is a world that is not in black and white. It's a world which is varied in color. Tell us a little bit about how your book fits into the broader stories about the War of 1812 that other historians have told. Well, I I can, and I think what this book brought to the table, this is the first book that was ever written on slaves and the war. And like I said, when I began this book, I thought it was a, a book about slave combatants, but I realized in reality it was a freedom story. And I, I somehow, I... I thought that the War of 1812 could have been a turning point because by that point in time, many of the northern states had already abolished slavery or they had already begun creating situations where slaves could secure their freedom. Well, in the southern states after the war, because the British liberated so many and because the British basically armed as many as they did, roughly 600 of them. After that, southern states began passing more stringent slave laws. And what what I point out in the book is that the War of 1812 enhanced slavery rather than weakening slavery. And ultimately what happens is that the lands that open up in the Gulf South what today is present-day Alabama, western Georgia, Mississippi, northern Louisiana, Arkansas, all these lands, the Indians were driven out, they were defeated, and it basically opened this land up for southern farmers. And as they moved in, what did they obviously cultivate? Cotton. And as they cultivated cotton, they harvested it with slaves. And so slavery from 1820 to 1850 is going to grow by 300%. And cotton production is going to increase by probably 400 to 500%. And because of what had happened in the war, the southern states are more more stringent in their, their enforcement of slave laws. And there's very few opportunities for slaves to get their freedom after that. So the war opens up land for slavery to expand and Absolutely. highlights the vulnerability that it possesses so Absolutely. that they can tighten. Yeah, makes sense. Word on the street is that you're uh, doing some more research on related topics, right? Can you talk to us about what you're working well, on now? Well, the related topic was one of the vignettes in this book. It's Jordan Bankston Noble. He was a slave born in Augusta, Georgia. And... At the time when I wrote this book, I didn't really know that much about him. And what I was able to put into the vignette was stuff that was pretty readily available in research. But since then, since 2018, I've been vehemently at work on doing a biography of Jordan Noble. And he lived from 1800 to 1890. He ultimately fights in four wars, two as a slave, That's the War of 1812. He's Andrew Jackson's drummer boy at the Battle of New Orleans. Then in the Seminole War of 1836, he's a drummer boy for Louisiana Volunteers. And then in 1846, by that point in time, he had secured his freedom 
and that's an interesting story in and of itself. He had secured his freedom, but he again enlists in Louisiana Volunteers, and he has a three a three month enlistment. They are sent to Texas. They do absolutely no combat. They do no real uh, military activities other than drill. And after three months, they're back in Louisiana. Well, by 1861, he's going, the interesting thing about it, he raises a regiment of troops initially for the Confederacy, a regiment of black troops. And they, they are known as Native Guards. Well, once David Farragut takes the city in the spring of 62, and once the Union Army occupies the city, Jordan Noble and these men immediately will change their loyalty from Confederacy to the Union, and they become part of the Benjamin Butler's Louisiana Native Guards. And they become one of the more important units that was formed in Louisiana. They will fight at the Battle of Port Hudson, and many of them died there. But ultimately what happens is that he survived the war. He did suffer a very bad hernia after falling off a log and landing on uh, timber below. And uh, for the rest of his life, he was dealing with that constant pain that he endured. But in the latter years of his life, he was able to get pensions for the War of 1812. He got a land claim from the Mexican War. He got a pension for the American Civil War. And it was not just a, pen a U.S. pension. It was also a Louisiana pension for the War of 1812 and for the, um, for the Civil War. So he basically got a number of pensions. But the interesting thing about it was that he helped found the St. James AME uh, church in New Orleans, which is the oldest black church in New Orleans. He became one of the more prominent drummers of the city, and he basically plays his drum at every major entertainment event. And people come out to hear him play, and they want to hear him play. Well, during the period of Reconstruction, after the war, because of his connections from the St. James AME Church, he's going to be appointed as a New Orleans Metropolitan Policeman. And he served as a policeman for about four years. And then after that, he's going to be appointed as a an inspector of beef and pork for the city of New Orleans. And then after that, he's going to be appointed as the keeper of the city park. And he has all these three jobs during the period of Reconstruction, because it's during Reconstruction that Southern Republicans are trying to bring in blacks as a a part of way to extend their power. Yeah, as the coalition. To, Absolutely. Yeah. And once Reconstruction's over, he loses all of his jobs, and he basically he spends the rest of his life trying to get pensions. He's trying to get an invalid pension for the horrible hernia he had suffered in 18 October of 1863 yeah well what a life um that this regiment that you're talking about that that he was in uh in Louisiana before yeah. it switched to the Union this is of course a, a unit that never actually was allowed to see combat for the Confederacy they never saw in fact um there were people who said that they were supposed to burn the federal mint when 
Farragut's vessels were approaching the city. Well, they didn't have orders to do this. And, in fact, Confederate government refused to use them for combat, so they never fought. And, in fact, as the Confederates evacuate the city in the spring of 62 because of the Union arrival and the soon-to-be occupation of the city, most of these black men, they store their weapons in a former Jewish synagogue and in a, um, a, a small school. And when they get the chance, you have a group of about 10 of these black leaders who go to General Banks and offer to volunteer for the service and claiming that they can even bring their own weapons. And, you know, he becomes a big celebrity. Uh, he, he, in fact, by the time of the American Civil War, he is going to be a captain in the Louisiana Native Guards. Whereas in the other wars, he was simply a, a drummer boy. Well, it's a, a crazy story, and I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, I am too. <laughs> Gene, thanks for coming. Uh, we're glad you could talk to us. And, and uh, for our listeners, his book is The Slave's Gamble, Choosing Sides in the War of 1812. And thank you for having me here today. It's been a real pleasure. I love to tell people about this because most people have no idea about the role that slaves played. And one of the interesting things is I gave a number of talks about this, and I gave one talk at a black genealogical society. And I was mentioning that about 4,800 slaves got their freedom. And this one black lady said, is that all? And I looked at her and said, well, if one slave got their freedom, isn't that enough? And she finally looked at me and said, okay, you're right. <laughs> This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.